Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to continue our study of this letter. We're actually rapidly coming to a conclusion of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to read this morning verses 9, 10, and 11 from chapter 5. So I hope you have the Bible with you. And if you do, open it up and follow along carefully to these words that we're going to read and spend our time with this morning. If you don't have the Bible with you, I'd ask you to pay extra careful attention to the words that are being read for you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, let's jump in. Verse 9, Paul writes this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. God, thank you for your word. Would you open it up to us this morning? We are so grateful. I am so grateful, but we are so grateful this morning that your word is precious. It's living and active. It's able to speak to us. Words penned so long ago, but words penned under your Holy Spirit's inspiration. And here today, in this setting, in this building, in this room, in this part of the world, this little speck in your creation, here we sit with our hearts turned to you and our ears turned open to you and our, our attention on you. And we're asking you, Father, to teach us by your Holy Spirit. And we know that you are faithful. Oh, we praise you for you are faithful. Thank you in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. Amen. You know, we've come through just a short little mini-series inside of the series, if you will. If you will recall, way back in chapter 3, as Paul ended, well, what we know is chapter 3. He didn't write it as chapter 3. I hope you understand that. He wrote it as one letter. But for us, at the end of chapter 3, he said this. He said, I'm asking a couple of things of God. One, he asked, he said, I'm asking that, that I would be able to come back and see you. But the second thing was, I'm asking that God would make you increase and abound in love for one another. This is the end of chapter 3. And... Uh, and that he would establish your hearts blameless before him in holiness before him at the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And out of that, those three mentions, that you would grow in love and become holy and pure before God and be ready for his coming. We kind of walk through, that's what chapter 4 walked through. He turned attention first to becoming holy. That's the first part of chapter 4. And then the middle part there in growing in love for each other. And now the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5, he he said, I want to spend some time making sure that you all are prepared and ready for the return of Jesus Christ. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we dug into a specific aspect that Paul wanted to address, and that is that we understand the hope that we really have in Jesus. That we don't, we don't have some mistaken idea that when, when people die, for example, that if they died, if you die before Jesus returns, that you may miss out on something. Remember, this is from, you may think that's silly, but remember, this is from the context of a group of believers who sincerely and fervently believed that Jesus was going to come back before they died, that he was going to come back very, very soon. Now, we look at that and we look back and say, well, that was like 2,000 years ago, but they believed it. They said, Jesus' return is right around the corner. You've heard me say this I say this to you again this morning. That was the exact correct belief for them to have, as it is for you to have. You should not carry an expectation in any way that you're going to pass on from this life before the return of Christ. You should be ready, expectant, knowing that he has said as he went, he, can't, he will come again. 
So Paul spends some time making sure they understand, listen, whether you're sleeping or whether you're awake, meaning whether you are living or whether you've already died. That's what that phrase means in that context. When Christ returns and he lays out some things that are going to happen, we're not going to go back through that message. We don't have time. You don't want me to take time to do that. And then he said, I want you to understand, knowing the hope that you have, I want you to understand the position you should be in awaiting Christ's return. That was last week's message. You should be awake and sober. That's what comes through at the, at the first part of chapter 5 here. He said, you don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but you're not going to be caught off guard because you're expecting it. And you should be alert to it. You should be aware of it. You should not have an indifference to it. And you should not be caught just living your life, sort of feeding your flesh and doing life day in and day out and letting life flow on by as if it doesn't matter. You should know Jesus' return is coming. You won't be surprised by it. You're alert. You're awake and you're sober. That's where we were at. And we're going to tie that back together. He's going to kind of summarize those things with the verses that I read for you this morning. For God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Well, there's really only three verses there. We're going to cover all three of them as the main point, which seems kind of weird. You don't have any subpoints out of the text, but when you only do three verses, that's kind of what happens. Read this again to yourself. You've heard it. I think I've said it at least twice, maybe three times already. God has not destined us, but let's just make it a little more personal. God has not destined you for wrath. He's not destined you for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ, through your Lord Jesus Christ, who died for you so that whether you happen to be awake or asleep, you might live with him. This is the heart of God. As is normal, well, there's a couple of things we have to dig into. There's a couple of words we have to look at. There's a couple of things we don't want to just take at surface level, but we want to be willing to, to, to sort of dig down and get our hands a little messy and say, what is exactly, as best of our understanding, what exactly is God asking us to consider? What is Paul writing about and what is God asking us to consider this morning? First of all, you see that very first, in that very first phrase or that word destined up there. And I don't know where that takes your mind. I'm suspicious that in a group of this size, there's all kinds of places where you come from. There's all kinds of places where you stand today in what we would call a theological discussion about, uh, or if you use the theological terms, reformed theology or not reformed theology. I want to I temper a bit the word destined there for you this morning because I don't think that's what Paul was intending on saying. Hear me. There's, some of you had conversations with me about this. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I love having these kind of conversations. We may not come out in the same place, and that's totally fine with me. Maybe you don't like the position I take. Maybe you don't think I take enough of a position. I don't know. I tend to be one of those people that says, depending on which verse you're reading, is depending on which theological stance you're going to come out with. And then you should read the other verses and you'll come out on the other side and realize that you should hold this intention. Hear me when I say this. I think there's plenty of verses that we can read that talk about God's sovereignty in, in causing us to be born and the life we're going to have and, and the way we look and all those things. I don't think that's what Paul is trying to say here. The word for, that the ASV is translated as destined is the Greek word tethemi. It simply means to place or to lay or to put. It is not some kind of shoehorned, preordained kind of word. This word is used a lot of times in scripture, as you might imagine, and it's 
not really ever used in the context of, of some kind of what I just used, what I just said, a preordained, uh, destined kind of thing. To place or to lay or to put. For example, last week when we talked about um, we talked about being awake and sober, I took you back to Matthew chapter 24, and I read to you uh, the uh, when Jesus said, you know, well, let me just go back and flip there, so I don't just tell you sort of what I think it says, but I tell you what it actually says. Jesus says, at the end of time, no one is going to know the day or hours. It's kind of jumping ahead of time where I want to be. But he says this. He says in verse 45, who is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household? And he goes on to say that blessed is the servant who is doing what his master is asking to do when his master returns right? He gives the picture that the master says, I'm setting out these, these jobs for you. I'm entrusting them to you, and I'm going away. And of course, Jesus is the master is going away. And I, when I come back, I want to find the servants doing what they're supposed to do. And at the end of that, he said, but what about if a servant decides that my master is delayed? He's gone. He's, he's a long time gone. I don't know when he's going to come back. And he begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. And he says, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him to, and an hour when he does not know. And he says this in verse 51 of Matthew chapter 24. And the master, when he finds this lazy and wicked servant, he will cut him in pieces and put him to Thame, place him, lay him, put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he uses the exact same word that Paul has just used in the text that we're reading this morning. Again, we should see that that's not somewhere, something that it was th- sort of a foreordained outcome. It was simply the result of that servant saying, I think my master's going to be a long time in coming, and so I'm going to just be lazy and wicked. I'm going I'm to beat my fellow servants. And when the master returns, this is what he's going to do with him. He's going to tithamy him. And I don't want to spend too much time with that because like, I already gave you away a little bit that if you have a conversation with me and I'm open to these kind of things, that uh, I think you can find scriptural evidence for both sides of the equation if you want to hold it that way. I think it puts us in a place where few... I don't want to take too much time with it. It puts us in a place where few of us like to be because we like things all cut and dried. We like things all figured out. And I think, quite frankly, scripture puts us in a place where it isn't like that. Where we say, but when I read this, it makes me think this. But when I read this, it makes me think this. And we understand that oftentimes Scripture puts us in a place of tension. Where we are held in a place of tension. And we say, I'm not actually exactly sure how God is in this. I know that I can trust God. I know that I can throw myself upon His grace. For it is by His grace and His grace alone that I'm saved. I also know that He invites me to come and worship Him. He has done all kinds of things to invite me to come and worship him. And I read from the pages of history that many choose not to. And God is displeased with that. Can we find it in ourselves to understand that when scripture says the righteous live by faith, that part of that is probably right here in this tension we're talking about. That I will do everything I can to please my master. And I will do everything I can to choose him. And yet I will understand that God is a sovereign God and it is only by his grace that working in me that I'm even able to see Jesus for who he is. And let me just say this. I hope we can agree on this. I believe the sincere, well-meaning, those of you who've had this conversation with me know I use this phrase all the time. The sincere, well-meaning, reformed 
person and the sincere, well-meaning, authentically saved Armenian person, their lives are going to look the same because they're going to all live to please God. So let's not quibble about it, shall we? God has not destined us for wrath, but I want to point out another key word here before I put some things together here. The word obtain. He has wanting us to, he has put us in a place to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word peripoiesis in Greek. Again, you know me if you're from church here. If you're not from church, sorry that you're getting all geeked out on Greek this morning. I hope that's okay with you. If you're from church, you know I do this all the time. You don't have to know the words. I'm not asking you all to be Greek scholars. I myself, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I depend on the people who've gone before me and the tools available to me to help me understand God's word as good as I can. Peripoiesis is to, uh, to acquire something or it is an acquisition. It's to possess something or it is a possession. It's to obtain something or it is something that's obtained. You see, I put the note there at the, at the bottom end because it refers to both the act of doing it as well as the thing that's done. It can be used passively or actively. It's used both ways in scripture actually. For example, last week I read to you 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 where Peter says these wonderful words that we are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We are God's possession. We are God's peripoiesis, he says, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's used passively. We are the thing. We are a possession. Now, in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, he uses the same word, except he uses it actively this time. He says, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain or acquire or, or possess the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ as something actively done. So in this text, God has not destined us. He's not laid us. Uh, he's not put us in a place. He's not desired a place, a, a wrath, his wrath to come upon us, but to obtain to possess, to be the possession, but also to possess salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me just say this, because whether you're going to bring this down finitely and say, this is what God wants in my life, and you're going to talk about predestination, all those kinds, I think at the very least, we can agree, we're going to back up with a big, big picture kind of thing and understand that when God created people in his image, his desire was not for us to experience his wrath, but to experience life. And because of our sin, that life was broken, that relationship was broken, and so he wants us to obtain salvation, to receive the gift of salvation that he made available through Jesus Christ. That's God's desire. Peter wrote those words so clearly, I don't think we should argue with that. God does not want that any of us should perish, but that all receive the knowledge of salvation, everlasting life through Jesus Christ. Church, let us never shy away. Let us never shrink back. Let us never get tired of always, always, always bringing it back to Jesus. For even in these verses, we can talk all morning long about what God's desire is, how God sees it, what he set out for us, what our role is, how we enter into it. But the bottom line is we have to come back to these verses and recognize that when Paul is saying that he's not destined for wrath but to obtain salvation, the key part of it is he's going to come back to Jesus because it's Jesus that died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we're living or dying, we are going to live with him. 
This all rests upon Jesus, and may the church be consumed always with Jesus. May you never forget. May you never move aside with all the discussions we have. May you never decide you're going to, it's so important to decide that we, we, we understand words correctly, that we move away from Jesus himself. It is him who died for us. It is him who came back to life for us. It is him of who we sing this morning. It is him that we worship. It is him who's glorified, and it is him who's in the process of having all things put under his feet, the final one being death itself, so that in all things God might be preeminent. We are his possession. Well, let me phrase that as a question. Are you his possession? Do you belong to him? None of this matters anything if you don't. None of the theology, none of the discussions, none of, I dare say, even what God really wants out of this matters if you haven't received and been possessed of Jesus and of his Holy Spirit. It is Jesus who died for us. Paul is very clear about this. He wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 these words, the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. We have made a conclusion that goes like this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Friends, you could take these verses right here and you could meditate on them for weeks on end, I'm convinced. To understand to mind the depths of what they really are. That it's really true that Jesus died for you. And the point of that, the point of that is so that you who are alive might not live for yourself anymore, but for him who died and was raised again. And to become convinced of that, to be controlled by that thought. To Timothy, Paul wrote these words, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. But as I often like to do, I want to make sure we understand that Jesus himself said these words. Fascinatingly, in the span of about six verses in John chapter 10, Jesus says these words. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. What does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Several verses later, he says, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And just two verses later, he says, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Can you believe and receive this morning that you and I are not destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us? who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Paul shifted back, by the way. I don't know if you noticed this. I used it this way already. But he shifted back to using awake and asleep, not in terms of alertness or or being indifferent to what's happening, but awake or asleep in terms of living or dying. He uses similar language in Romans chapter 14. I want to read them for a specific reason, but let me read Romans 14, verses 7. Uh, eight, nine for you. For none of us, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. I share those verses because it's the same theme we're talking about, whether you're awake or asleep. Christ is Lord of all. 
He died for all. But I also share it because the context of those verses, if you want to care to go back and look and read sometime on your own, the context of those verses are that Paul is daring suggest that we should limit our own personal freedoms for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we might not offend them and lead them astray. We should be careful how we treat and interact with them. We should also be careful not to pass judgment on our brothers and sisters. He comes from both sides in Romans chapter 14. He comes from both sides. You should, again, did you notice there's a tension that needs to be held there? Have you lived in that tension yet? That we should restrict our personal freedoms for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ to not offend them. And at the same time, we should be careful to not judge our brothers and sisters who don't have the same convictions we have. There's a tension there. And in the middle of that, Paul says the words that I just read to you. That when we live or die, we're not living and dying to ourselves. We're living and dying to Christ. If we live, we live for Christ. If we die, we die to Christ. All right. Believe it or not, we spend all this time with that. And that's really not the actual point that Paul is trying to get to. For we can have discussions about theology. But Paul, I would dare tell you, is not as interested in theology as he is interested in having that theology mean something to us. Do something in us. Right? So let's not get caught up in the trap that we're just going to spend time making sure we have the right thinking about Scripture and about who God is and about what we're supposed to be doing. But we're actually doing those things. We're actually yielding ourselves to that because Paul follows up this, this, this summarization we've been, uh, we've been uh, t- pulling back the understanding of the hope we have and the position we're supposed to have as Jesus comes back. And he says, but let me just tell you this. Therefore, understanding what God wants out of this, that you encourage one another and you build one another up just as you're doing. That the purpose of everything I'm telling you is not just for your own personal happiness. But the purpose is so that you can encourage each other with these things. And you can build each other up with these things. So that we're all ready when Jesus comes back. Not just me, but that we're all ready when Jesus comes back. That's Paul's heart for them. That's what he's asking their heart to be for each other. That's my heart for you. And I'm asking that it's your heart for each other too. That we would adopt, if we can dare do this, we would adopt Paul, or God's attitude that we're not willing that any should perish. That we don't want anyone to miss out. But we want all to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Therefore, encourage and build each other up. Once again, I'm just going to focus quickly on a couple of words. The word encourage is the Greek word parakaleho. It's a great word. It's one of my favorite words. And it's because it's the work of the Holy Spirit when we encourage each other. We know that because it's the word John uses for the Holy Spirit. The paraclete. It's made of two words. Kaleho means to call. means to call someone. And para means alongside or near or beside. So to encourage someone is really to invite someone or to call someone near. Now I tell you, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. I've said this before to you, but I'm going to say it again. The work of the Holy Spirit is always to invite us near to God. Close to God. To God's side. It's what he wants to do. He wants to invite you. Say, come. Come closer. Don't stand so far away. The, the gap between you has been taken care of. The divide between you has been, has been put. The, the, the rift between you and God has been solved through Jesus Christ. Come. Come near. Lay aside those things and come close to God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So when we encourage each other, that's what we're doing. We should clearly see that, by the way. We should own that, if I can use that phrase. Because we should not sort of assume that it's my job to go and encourage and make everyone feel better and pat them on the back and say, good job, you didn't go. No, 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 no. When I'm encouraging people in the body of Christ, I should see it as the holy task of working in partnership with the Holy Spirit. Because that's what he does. 
That's what he does. He calls people near. The writer of Hebrews used this word a couple of times. I'm going to just illustrate it for you this morning. Hebrews 3.13, but exhort I underline the word for you. Parakaleho, one another, every day, every day, as long as it is called today. So as long as today is today, you can find someone to encourage and exhort. So that no one, that none of you, read that correctly. I'll just start at the beginning because it sounds much better that way. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. A couple chapters later in Hebrews 10, 23, a verse I'm guessing we're all familiar with. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more. What? Yeah, you read it, right? And all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day is he referring to? It's the day Paul has been talking about this whole time in Thessalonians that we spend the last several weeks about, right? It's the day of Christ's return. The readiness built in us that, that we have, that we are aware of it. And we know our hope, is, our hope is that when he comes back, we're all going to live with him. So encourage one another with those things. And all the more as the day draws near. Don't hold back. Don't do less and less. But all the more as the day draws near. Now, the second word is even, I think, paints an even stronger picture for us. Parakaleho is the work of exhortation and encouragement. He says we should build one another up. The Greek word is oikodomeho. It's actually a, a tangible word. It's a, it's a literal word. If you're a carpenter, if you work with wood and you build things, this is you. And oikodomeho is to be a house builder. That's what it means, to build a house, literally, to construct, to build up something. And Paul says, I'm going to take that analogy, and I'm going to apply it to the church. I'm going to say that you should build each other up. You should help construct each other. You should strengthen each other. You should stabilize each other. You should make sure the house is not going to collapse. Right? Make sure there's a sure foundation and footing underneath it and then build upon that sure foundation and build the walls with skill and make sure that they're reinforced and make sure they're insulated. Think of a house and think of the analogy to a body. You know, Paul uses our physical bodies, but we could use a house because there's all kinds of things in a building, right? There's the, there's the wood stuff and there's the plaster stuff and there's the concrete stuff, but there's all kinds of other stuff, right? There's plumbing and there's electric, electrical stuff. There's all kinds of systems that have to work together to make a house really be a house to make a building really function as a building. Guess what? There's all kinds of things that have to take place in a church body for the body to be the body. Some of us are plumbing and electrical systems. Some of us are control systems somewhere. Some of us are structural items. Some of us are, are safety items. Some of us, there's all kinds of, that's just all off the top of my head. You could, you could spend a lot more time developing that. It's not worth it. Because I trust the Holy Spirit to help you see the part that you play. That's exactly what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. He said, God has given to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. He goes down through that line in Ephesians chapter 4. He ends with these words, from which the whole body joined and held together. Every joint with which it is equipped, when it, each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It is built up, oikodomeho, in love. When each part is doing it. Now, now listen, I don't know if you remember this. It's okay if you don't, because I don't always remember what I preach week to week. And I have an unfair advantage because I get to study again the next week and look back, and you may not. But if you remember last week when we shared the two stories out of Matthew chapter 24 that help us be awake and sober, I, I propose to you that out of those stories that Jesus said, there's two things we can glean that mean we're ready. The first was the story I already referred to, the servant doing what his master's asked him to do. 
so that he's doing what he's told to do when the master returns, which I propose to you meant that when for you to be ready for Jesus' return means you are going to be, you're going to be found obedient to what Jesus has asked you to be doing. I see that fit very nicely with these verses that I'm reading right now, right? It reinforces the emphasis that to build each other up is to play your part, is to do what you're asked to do, to be the function or the part of the body or the house that God has asked you to be. All of you have one. To be ready. Now, the other piece that we're going to pick up here eventually along the way here, the other piece of being ready was the next story because it's when the, 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 the ten um, virgins had the oil and well, only five of them had oil, right? The bridegroom came. It's the story of that. And when they came and knocked on the door, what did Jesus say? He said, depart because I don't know you. I don't know you. So to be ready is to know Jesus and to be doing what he's asked us to do. Well, let me come back to my, I kind of got off track there. To be built up, Paul uses this word in 1 Corinthians, and again he's talking to the church, and again he's talking about playing our part, but he's very clear about something. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 12 says, so with yourselves, so with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestation of the Spirit, since you want to see the Spirit working, let's make sure you're striving to excel in building up the church. You probably have heard things like this, but you should hear it again, perhaps. Jesus is not interested in superstars inside of his church. For Jesus is the superstar. If I can use that phrase. I don't really like using that phrase of Jesus because it's way too low for him. It's way too cheap for him. But you know what I mean, right? Jesus is not looking for more people to be the star of the show, to be the center attraction in his body. Because he already is. So when we strive and yearn to see the Holy Spirit working in it, even through us, which I would tell you, don't, don't, get too, <laughs> don't get too Mennonite on me and say, well, I, I'm just humble. I don't have anything. No, 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 no. You should strive to see God working through you through the Holy Spirit. You should strive to see that. You should long for it. You should want to do it. But you should do it so that you can build up the church. Not so that you can pat yourself on the back and people can say, look, what a great person that guy is. Just a couple of chapters before that, again, as Paul is instructing him how to interact with each other in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says this, you might have the quotation that all things are lawful. That's the phrase I think they were saying to him. Well, all things are lawful. We're free. All things are lawful. And Paul says, but not all things are helpful. And then he says, saying that phrase again, you might say all things are lawful, but please understand that not all things build up. Once again, you see the idea that Paul has that there are times when you should restrict your own personal freedoms for the sake of the body. This is not a teaching that many of us in today's church like to hear. But I digress from the point of the message and I want to stay true to what God's text has in front of us. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. That's the good news Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. Can I tell you something this morning yet? I'm going to clear the screen. Can I tell you something before we wrap this stuff together? Even in the word construction itself of that last verse, build one another, um, encourage one another, and build one another up. Even there, I think we get some clues because Paul uses two different words. When we are to encourage each other, he uses the Greek word alelon, which just means all of you. 
encourage all of you, like, like all of you be encouraged and, 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 and do that together as a body. But when he uses the word build each other up, he uses an interesting phrase. He actually says the same word twice. He says heis, heis, H-E-I-S. Heis means one. So he's saying build, it doesn't come out very good in English. Build one, one up. But think of what he's saying. Encourage all of you. All of us, we should be encouraging each other. And I think there's a, there's a place and a role for this kind of stuff where we're together as the body of Christ and we're here for our encouragement. We sing songs of joy. We sing songs of sorrow. We sing songs of faith. We sing songs of God, pleading God to help us. And we do it together. And it's an encouragement to us. It ought to be an encouragement. It focuses our minds and our hearts and says, fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of our faith, Right? But he says also when you're building each other up, and he uses the word, the, the, the phrase, one-one. And I think we actually, in the English, would say one-on-one. One-to-one. Build each other up. You understand that most of the hard work of discipleship, friends, comes in one-on-one kind of relationships. It doesn't come in this context. I mean, I hope my messages are uplifting. I hope they're instructive. I hope they change your life according to God's Spirit using His text. I hope our song services, I hope our time together, I hope all those things are true. But I think most of us will acknowledge that we grow. When we're really struggling with something, we need to be discipled. That almost always comes through some kind of someone coming alongside of us and shoring up the house, so to speak. Build each other up one-on-one. I simply tell you, let's not quibble about that, and let's recognize it's a both and. We're to do this, and we're to do the, the individual stuff. Both. All of it. All of it. And all the more, as you see the day approaching, as the writer of Hebrews said. All right, so I shared with you that we are to be doing what we're supposed to be doing, what the Master's called us to. We're to know Jesus. That's where we're supposed to find ourselves. That's so, that's so that we are ready And I say that to us as individuals, but I say that to us as a church body so that we are ready. We're a bride ready for the return of Christ. I want to read to you from Philippians because Paul captured both of these mindsets. And I want to invite us to ask the Holy Spirit to give us this same kind of attitude as individuals and as a church body that Paul had in Philippians. I'm going to read just two short snippets. In Philippians chapter 1, he says this, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's referring to his imprisonment. This will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, is to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Now, I'm going to pause just a minute, because the operative verse I want to draw our attention to is right in the middle of there, where he says, if I live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor. Paul had this mindset He had this attitude. He had this way of looking at things that said, as long as I'm living, as long as my heart is beating, as long as I'm here living, then I am engaged in fruitful ministry for Jesus Christ. I'm working for the gospel. I'm doing what the master's asked me to do. And in that way, I propose to you, based on the rest of the scriptures that we've been studying the last couple of weeks, he is ready for the return of Christ. 
He's doing what the master's asked him to do. May we, by God's grace, through the help of his Holy Spirit, adopt a similar attitude. It doesn't matter. If I die, that's better because I get to be with Jesus. But if I'm living, then I know that will mean fruitful ministry. That will mean me participating in the mission of the church and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in chapter 3, Paul turns attention to the other side of what we talked about. So let me spend some time with that. He writes in chapter 3, verse 7, he's just listed all the things that he could hang his hat on, so to speak. But he said, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. See, here's the other side of it. Paul said, I will forsake everything so that I might know Jesus. I might know him. And to know is to be intimately acquainted in this case. I might know his suffering. I might know his death so that I might also know his life. You see, it's the same things we're dealing with, whether we're awake or we're asleep. We're ready for the return of Christ because we're doing what he's asked us to. And we know Jesus We know Jesus. Do you understand the prize of heaven is to be with Christ? Is to worship him forever? Is to know him in ways that you can't even fathom at this point in time? (laughs) It may sound weird to say it this way. I'm in a church of people who've chosen to come to church this morning. But if you don't think it worth your time and worth forsaking everything to know him now, why do you think you might enjoy eternity in heaven? Jesus is our prize. To know him, I count everything as a loss. I'm not there yet. I haven't obtained it yet. Notice he used that same word. I haven't obtained it yet. But Jesus has made me his own and I'm facing, I'm moving, I'm forgetting what lies behind, I'm straining toward what what lies ahead, and I would tell you first and foremost, Paul is defining that by knowing Jesus more and more, because he said that, right? I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, becoming like him in his death, sharing his suffering, becoming like him in his death, so that I might also achieve the resurrection from the dead. Is this where you find yourself this morning? Nothing matters as much as knowing Christ. I can already tell you he knows you. He knows you intimately. He knows you inside and out. I can also already tell you that he paid for all your sins. But my question is, do you know him? 
Have you forsaken the world and all its entrapments and all the things that shine in our eyes that you might know him? I think the test of whether you know him, whether you're ready for his coming, is whether you've said, I'm going to forsake all those things that I might grow in that knowledge and that I might be found doing what he's asked me to do and his return. You see, they're connected, right? You can't have one without the other. Once again, I bring to you the closing benediction of First Thessalonians. We've been reading this week in and week out. I don't know if it's had any effect on you. I'm hoping it's getting drilled in your mind at least so that we understand what Paul is going to send them off with. But we also live in this reality. I've been inviting you to read it with me every week as we go through this. So I'm going to invite you to read it with me again to make it a statement, sort of a, an ownership thing, right? It's us. It's who we are. It's what we're asking God to do for ourselves and for each other. So read it with me if you would. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God, thank you so much for your word this morning. I pray that you would press in that which is of you, the words that came from you, the inspirations, the thoughts that came from your Holy Spirit the ways that you're helping us to see and understand, the, the, the distinctions you're making, the, the things you're asking of us individually and as, as a body, the things that whatever's from you this morning, God, I pray that you would press them in, that you would bring them to mind, not just this morning, but in the coming hours, days, and even weeks and months, and as long as you, as long as you desire to, God, I pray that you, being sovereign over us and us having relinquished ourselves to you this morning, that you would have your way with us. I pray similarly in the same way, God, that if there's things that came out of my mouth that were not true, that were not right, were not for building up, or whatever the case may be, that you would make me aware of it even right now or through someone else or in the coming days and give me an opportunity to correct, or that you would simply remove it from our, our memory, as it were, as if it had not been spoken. We want to be so careful, God, that we are honoring you, that you get to be Lord over us. Thank you for Jesus Christ who died for us. Oh, thank you for Jesus Christ who died for us so that we might obtain salvation, that we might at his return see the finality and the fullness of what you worked, what you began way back, but certainly what you accomplished when Jesus said it is finished as he hung up on that cross. We look forward to, we long for the day when we'll see with our eyes what our hearts believe by faith. Lead us, lead us by your spirit. Keep us for that day. Keep us holy and blameless. God, you're the one who does these things. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.